becoming simply a technician. There's no feeling, there's no drama, there's no passion. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bot? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out and enjoy a song? It's about time in a film nothing happened. What a brave choice a director made. What a, what a pioneer this guy is. Let's do nothing. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft, and work hard. Movies. Mm -hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies, okay? Pick this up. Control sound. Roll camera. Speed. Yeah. Welcome to Scene by Scene, this is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker and film lover's perspective. My name is Joe. My name's Justin. Before we dive into this week's discussion on Mulholland Drive, do you want to let everybody listening know that this discussion will contain spoilers for the film. So if you have not seen Mulholland Drive, definitely recommend that you watch it before continuing listening. I'd also add real quick that these discussions that we have are probably more enjoyable in general if you've seen the film. And in this case, I don't know if anything we say would make sense if you haven't seen the film. I completely agree. The intent with these discussions is to highlight certain elements of the film and the film making process in general, you get a lot more from it if you've seen the film. This week's episode, Mulholland Drive, Justin, uh, this was your pick. Before we dive into the details of it, I guess, was there something that prompted this choice or this selection from you? I think we had discussed this at the end of our last episode, that David Lynch was kind of a blind spot for you. And I kind of wanted to talk about one of his films with you. And I kind of was under the impression that you wouldn't necessarily love the film. Maybe that's not the case, though. We'll find out. I picked this one, even though we had both seen this film already, uh, just because it was one that I wanted to revisit. I think it is largely considered one of his best films. And I had a new Criterion Blu-ray sitting on the shelf that had not been opened and I needed an excuse to open it, to be honest. <laughs> so oddly enough, my Criterion Blu-ray version of Mulholland Drive actually was open, but I will admit that it had been unwatched at this point. I, I want to go back to something you said, though, real quick. What about Mulholland Drive or knowing me personally led you to believe that this was going to be a film that I would range anywhere from, okay, Joe's going to hate it to at least dislike it a lot? I don't necessarily think Mulholland Drive is an experimental film, but it does have elements that are far from traditional and elements that are just a little strange. And I have this opinion of you that you're kind of not into experimental works. I will acknowledge I am less interested in a non-traditional narrative or something that is deemed experimental. So of the two of us, I think I'm drawn to that a little bit more. Well, there's a lot of them, but one of the other well-regarded David Lynch films is Blue Velvet. The difference I see with this and Blue Velvet is I think Blue Velvet, although there's weird elements to it, it does still function as a traditional narrative. I mean, it's not necessarily plot driven, but there it feels like a traditionally scripted film. And this feels kind of the exact opposite. 
now I think we'll get into this. I don't, I don't totally think this is the puzzle a lot of people make it out to be. And where I think there's room for inter- different interpretations, I do not think it's as cryptic or hard to follow as some people say. But it is very, it is the opposite of traditional narrative. Full disclosure, if you had chosen Blue Velvet, that is actually a blind spot for me. And and let me just kind of get into our history with the film. And I'm going to kind of take this as a broader discussion point right now. David Lynch has been a blind spot for me for quite some time. The films of his that I have seen, um, I remember being lukewarm to liking. And admittedly, I don't think I've ever watched any of his films more than once. So therefore, I, I do think I'm I'm missing things and probably missing a lot. You know, you mentioned Blue Velvet, which is, I, I would say, a highly regarded film of his. Um, that's actually a film I've never seen. You know, I, I watched Twin Peaks. I had previously seen Mulholland Drive. And I'll just kind of tease it that my opinion of the film has changed since the first time I watched it. I've seen uh, The Elephant Man back in high school for a psychology class. And that was about the extent of my exposure to David Lynch. It's been a long time since I've seen Blue Velvet. I think I like this more than I like Blue Velvet. In terms of my experience with David Lynch, when I had first started working at a movie theater, there was a projectionist working there whose favorite filmmaker was David Lynch. Naturally, us both being into movies, we discussed movies, and he kind of introduced me to David Lynch. So I actually think the first film I saw was Blue Velvet and then Eraserhead. As of now, I I think of his feature film work, the only thing I haven't seen is Wild at Heart. So I've seen most of his films, and I don't love all of them, but he is a filmmaker that I I really appreciate. And he's just one of those filmmakers that I can just like listen to forever. He's just really entertaining to listen to. We'll get into this a little bit later on in the episode when we talk about supplementals. But for me, I think I had more enjoyment out of my Criterion Blu-ray experience watching the behind the scenes footage um, maybe than I did actually watching the film itself. We'll we'll talk about that. Justin, since this was your pick for the week, do you want to feebly try to explain the story of Mulholland Drive? I can't believe it. I'm just so excited to be here. I'm in this dream place. This one comes highly recommended. What are you doing? Get out of the car. Yeah. The girl is still missing. What's wrong? I don't know who I am. I wonder where you were going. Mulholland Drive. Come on, it'll be just like in the movies. We'll pretend to be someone else. Know who you are, don't 
Where's this going? getting stranger there's a woman we know her as rita played by laura herring who gets into a car crash on maholland drive she's the lone survivor and as a result of the crash has amnesia she takes refuge in this apartment at the same time betty naomi watts has moved to hollywood to to be a star to become an actress. And she's staying in her aunt's apartment while her aunt's away shooting a movie, the same apartment that Rita is hiding in. Uh, the two women become close and start investigating Rita's real identity and the meaning of a mysterious blue key found in Rita's purse. Um, I also think a big part of the movie is about Adam, played by Justin Thoreau, He's attempting to recast the lead role uh, in his movie, and he's getting a lot of pressure from uh, studio heads, his his own manager, and I guess sort of like the puppet masters of Hollywood. They're all telling him, you need to cast this certain actress, and he's sort of not interested in being told what to do. But I feel like that's just the beginning. Um, at a certain point, fantasy and reality start to kind of blur the line between the two blur. And things just get weird. That's a very noble attempt. I would probably add that Mulholland Drive is the biggest uh, screw you to any screenwriting or film instructor that has ever told you not to write a dream sequence into your film because it's cliche. Because honestly, Mulholland Drive is the biggest dream sequence that ever existed. I want to get into this a little bit. Um, we don't need to do that right this minute, but I guess the word dream, we'll talk about the word dream. This may be a semantic argument. So a little background on the film. Lynch had said that the title Mulholland Drive was at one point going to be used for a Twin Peaks spinoff. Uh, had no connection to this actual film except for the title. Uh, that sort of went nowhere. He also talked about trying to get a project called Mulholland Drive going in the 90s. I don't know if that has any connection to the actual story that ultimately makes it on screen. Um, and then at some point it gets greenlit as a TV show pilot for ABC and then is rejected by ABC. And if I could jump in on that, if, if you listen to the interviews uh, from Lynch, not only was it rejected by ABC, but it kind of sounded like ABC didn't understand it or may not have even been taking it quite as seriously. We gave the pilot, not yet finished, over to ABC television. And the executive in charge watched this pilot at six o'clock in the morning, standing up on the phone, drinking coffee with a thing on a TV across the room, and he didn't like it. So, on the phone? Uh, making phone calls, you know, like an executive, they do. So this quote is from Lynch on Lynch, edited by Chris Rodley. I actually have the book, but this chapter on Mulholland Drive is in the booklet included with the criterion. Chris asks, once you started shooting the pilot, did ABC bother you or did they leave you alone? And his response was, 
the shooting went great, but anyone who gets a certain amount of power in the business says, I want to see the dailies. So what happened was videotapes of the dailies were sent to them. In the old days, dailies were sacred and only a few people saw them. That's because dailies are like a mountainside, a lot of worthless rocks and then some gold. But it sort of all looks the same unless you're able to discern the gold. So you say to them, you can't discern the gold. But then they say, baloney, we can discern the gold, but we don't know for sure that you can discern the gold. But I think that's like a prime example of a studio, in this case, a television studio, I guess, greenlighting something they don't even understand. And then they see the footage and then they're even more confused. I imagine they at least know David Lynch's reputation. They should have known what they were getting into. Because I mean, even Twin Peaks is not a straightforward show. And he had issues. Was, what network was Twin Peaks? Do you know? I want to say it was also an ABC. You know, one of the things that I found very interesting while watching the Criterion Blu-ray, and we'll talk about supplemental material um, closer to the end of the show, was Justin Thoreau's discussion about how ABC would get the dailies. Lynch had 300 takes of Justin Thoreau just doing this like head turn for a scene in the movie when he first sees Naomi Watts. And just the lack of understanding, I think, that a studio head would have versus what Lynch was trying to get and accomplish. I remember while we were shooting, like sort of hearing whispers that like ABC not only wasn't liking the footage, they were kind of tossing it around, like passing tapes around the office, kind of going like, you know, like, oh, check out what they shot today, you know, like, and because David will do these takes that, you know, will be, I remember he did one really, I'm probably burned like, you know, 10,000 feet of film of me just like looking. You know, like he, he's sort of shouting directions from the side. He always uses a megaphone. I'm like, all right, now what? Now you're scared. Now you're, now, all right, stop it. All right, now you're, that. you know, like, so he would direct you through these things. He's looking for little pieces of gold to sort of mine out of that. Um, so I'm sure that footage was going back to ABC and they were just like, what's, why do we need 10 minutes of, you know, someone just staring off into the distance? And it's funny to imagine them watching 10 minutes of Justin Thoreau just looking, turning his head. Not to oversimplify it, but these are not necessarily creative people. They're business people, with all due respect. I mean, there is a business side of film and film production, and that is their side. So, yeah, Studio Canal uh, stepped in, got the rights, and financed the completion of Mulholland Drive as a feature film. Interesting to note that in, in one of the interviews on the Criterion disc, he He's very blunt about the fact that they basically got a green light and then he had no idea what he was going to do. He had zero ideas. Right about that time, the contract got done and that meant we we're, were going. But I had zero ideas. Zero. And this is a true story. That night, the night of the green light, with no ideas, I sat down and did my meditating. And this particular meditation, I dived down in there, and as I say, like a string of pearls, one idea after another came, and I knew exactly what to do. So then the final film is the re-edited TV pilot with approximately 50 minutes of additional footage. Film premiered at Cannes 
and Lynch won Best Director. Well, actually tied with Joel Cohen for The Man Who Wasn't There. I'll make a Cohen Brothers reference later. And this also earned Lynch an Academy Award nomination for Best Director. Uh, anything else you want to add, Joe? If I were, recall correctly, and I think the box office would would support this, I, I mean, this was by no means a, a hit at all. It wasn't a, a film that was massively successful, but it's kind of interesting in the history of, of cinema. Now this is looked at as one of the greatest films of, of the decade, and, and it was even deemed so uh, by the BBC and... Um, you know, a number of critics had voted it in 2016 the best film of the decade. Based off of that sentiment, would you be in line with that? Is is this the best film of the decade? Basically, that 2000 to 2010 range. You know, my my gut is to say no. Now, if you're going to follow that question up with what is the best film of the decade, then I don't have an answer for you. I like this film. I like this film a lot. And I think it is probably the most interesting film of the decade. What do you think? I will say it is up there upon this rewatch. However, it should also be noted that some of my favorite films came out kind of within that window. Uh, So that 2000 to 2010 range. I'd love for us to, to do an episode of Children of Men, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Lost in Translation. I think it's it's hard to say that, yes, this is the best film of the decade, but I also can't argue people that believe that either. So let's let's talk about the the story of Mulholland Drive and you know some some of the themes that were kind of on display here. If I could just kind of get started. This was my second time watching it and I'll say I don't remember a lick of this movie beforehand. I thought that the first scene was actually that the discussion in Winky's diner between the two guys, the one guy explaining his dream to the other person. I don't know why I thought that was the opening. That is one of those scenes that just kind of stuck with me. If someone asked me, Mulholland Drive, what is the first thing you think of? that winky scene would be my answer. It's just one of those scenes that stuck with me for some reason and is very memorable. You know, not just the scene inside, but it's like the conclusion to that scene as well. Yes. Can I ask you a question real quick? Yeah. So we kind of talked about how like this is sort of viewed as one of the best films of the decade. It's also considered a very confusing film by a lot of people. And a lot of people go to David Lynch for answers. You work so hard to get, you know, after the ideas come, to get this thing built, all the elements to feel correct, the whole to feel correct, in this beautiful language called cinema. And the second it's finished, people want you to change it back into words. And it's very, very um, saddening. It's it's, um, a torture. It's the film, the language is cinema. When things are concrete, very few variations in interpretation. But the more abstract a thing gets, the more varied the interpretations. But people still know inside what it is for them. So then, you know, people are confused. They go to the source and he has no answers or he has some cryptic. If I could, I'd like to just read something from the Criterion booklet. 
Lynch is unwilling slash unable in exactly what proportion one can only guess to analyze the movie because he knows that if the truth, truth in quotations, were revealed, the dream that is Mulholland Drive would die. In this respect, words are the movie's enemy, Lynch's own pronouncements potentially being the deadliest of all. I think for Lynch, if he could just say what the film was about, there would be no reason for him to make the film. And if he just told people what the film was about, be no reason for people to go see the film. For Lynch, the meaning of the film is the experience. Whether you understand everything that happens or whether you understand nothing, the meaning of the film is that experience, I think. What was your experience or the meaning that you took away from it? I think it's ultimately about how people remember the things they've done in the past and how people want to forget the things they've done in the past and maybe sort of rewrite that history, fool themselves into thinking it didn't happen the way it did. There is something something sort of happy about it in the sense that she she's created this fantasy and at a certain point she wakes up from the fantasy and she comes to terms with what happened and what she did in that moment she's living in reality now in this case it leads her to kill herself that that realization and that living in that reality is sort of like a happy ending i think coming to terms with the past and I do think ultimately this is a love story. I'll take it a step further because the first time I had seen Mulholland Drive, I actually was living out in California and I was living in Los Angeles. And at the time, I don't think I had the appreciation for it, but now many years removed from that, I think I I connected with it a little bit differently because there is this element of hopefulness and the whole reason why anybody goes out to LA is for stardom. And I really felt like this film is just a a really telling story about the naivety versus what becomes the reality of countless people that go out there to pursue an opportunity and how, I guess I'd say how Los Angeles as a whole will chew people up and leave them to being something that they never thought that they would become. But I do feel like this is a film about LA. And to an extent, I think it's a film about success and failure and the consequences of. Well, I would agree with you. Um, I do think it is sort of like the ultimate Hollywood LA film in the sense that the film opens with Betty coming to, to Hollywood to be a star. And that section of the film is the fantasy of like, Oh, I wish this is how it happened. You know, where she goes to the auditions and she does really well. She's there for a couple days or whatever. And she's already, you know, sort of succeeding. Obviously that's not really what happened. But I do think it is very much about exactly what you said, where she comes with these big dreams. From my perspective, then there's like this this fallback where she she finds someone that she loves. Then this thing happens where the person that she's in a relationship with that she loves all of a sudden becomes 
successful. And it sort of changes that dynamic between them. Then she suddenly finds that like she has no one. Her dream of becoming famous and, you know, an actress or whatever has failed. And now she's lost the one connection she's had. And now she finds herself in a place where she like does not fit in at all. And then there's like these other elements about the way Hollywood will completely destroy a director's life if they don't do exactly what the studio says. I mean, he he says no. Uh, Adam says no to casting the actress they're saying cast. And, you know, the movie shut down. He goes home and his wife is sleeping with the pool guy. Now, I don't believe that they directly caused that to happen. But I do think by placing that scene in that section of the film, Lynch is implying that if you don't play by the rules, your entire life will be destroyed, including you will lose your wife. And then obviously his money is completely shut off and his assistant tells him he's he's broke and he doesn't understand how that's possible. So there's this element of like a director's role or place in Hollywood. And then there's just little like filmmaking inside information, like the casting process and stuff like that. But I think it's not about filmmaking necessarily. It's about the machine of Hollywood. Where I may disagree with you a little is that although I think it is sort of like this ultimate Hollywood film, I think the core, the main point, the heart of the film is a lost love. And it's not about unfulfilled dreams for me. I will agree. I think that the element of the lost love is very much present. Walking away from it, that's not one of those things that stuck with me. I think that's because later on in the film, you see the extent that Naomi Watts' character will go to and just the the consequences to that. And and actually as I'm saying that maybe I maybe I start to agree with you more because those actions though that seems like a scorned lover's actions. Something I'd I'd pose to you. Do you think that this was David Lynch's way of just kind of poking at the studio system a little bit himself? Yeah, I think so. The elements that you know we talk about with the Adam character most of that is present in the TV cut, the pilot. He has this bad experience with the studio, and then he's also making a film in which a director has a bad experience with the studio. I think that's completely coincidental. He is doing that, but I think he's bringing past experiences. He's bringing experiences from Twin Peaks. He's bringing experiences probably from Dune, and the reason why I bring this up is there's there's just so many moments of that where you have these financiers who are kind of pulling the strings and you have a headstrong director who's kind of bucking and pushing back. And then you have Mr. Rourke, who is this silent figure who, not unlike the character that you would find in the Red Room in Twin Peaks, is just this mysterious figure that is kind of there and people answer to him to an extent, but you're never really given like a, a clarity. And, and I know that there's been discussion about who or what he represents and what Lynch is trying to say with that character. The other thing I th- thought was interesting, this is tied to the audition scene with Betty the portrayal of the director in that scene 
is sort of Lynch also kind of poking at other filmmakers or maybe even critics a little bit. Part of what makes good filmmakers, but what makes David Lynch kind of unique is he works from purely this like instinct level. Like he doesn't overthink things. If it feels right in that moment, then it's right. It's like purely intuition. And I feel like the director is portrayed as like someone who is like over intellectualizing the filmmaking process. Betty goes into this audition scene and you have some casting people, producers or whatever, and they look to the director and ask, do you want to give her any input before they, they run the scene? Betty, why don't you join Woody over there and we'll play the scene? Bob, do you have anything you wish to say? Something to Betty before we begin. No, it's not a contest. The two of them with themselves. So don't play for real until it gets real. Okay. And then everybody in the scene kind of like rolls their eyes or kind of gives this little look to the person next to them. And I think it's supposed to be like, number one, what the hell does that mean? How does an actor use that information to give a performance? And it's also like, this is what happens when directors try to overthink every little thing and give too much information. Do you think I'm way off on this? No. Um, so in the context of that scene, the way that Naomi Watts' character, Betty, kind of reacts isn't necessarily following that direction either. Neither actor is, I don't feel. So to kind of take it a step further, not only are you being discredited by the casting director and the other people in the room, but then your actors are also not adhering to the direction that you're trying to give. Do you think based on those words, you know what the director was trying to communicate? Well, and that's interesting because I think that there's different interpretations to it. In that moment, the actor possibly is doing their interpretation. But to me, my interpretation was different. And that's why I came to the conclusion I did. Because, you know, it's it's kind of a silly scene between an older man and, and a younger lover. Oh, yeah. The scene is awful. The scene I mean, is, it, like, I was expecting it to be, like, very subtle up until, like, they get really close and intimate. That would have been my takeaway from it. I guess to your point, it's just broad direction that doesn't really help anybody. Well, I mean, if the actor doesn't know what it means, or if the actor can read that information in so many ways that they themselves are now overthinking it, I would actually say that's maybe a harmful piece of direction, not a, a positive piece of direction. And clearly everybody else in the scene, the other characters, have no respect for the director. Naomi Watts said that like this was a scene that she responded to. I just thought, wow. I, I mean, right away, every time you look for look at a script, there's usually one thing that really pops out and goes, oh my God, I get the whole part. I know, I know this woman. I know what to do and I have to do this. Um, well, already I had this, so... Um, 
it was uh, it was obviously that audition scene. And we went to a boardroom and rehearsed um, with all the actors who also had many experiences and their own version of that story to tell. Um, and I just remember seeing the smile on David's face, like like it was Christmas. It was it was a magical moment. It all just worked beautifully. And I felt when I was doing some of the scenes, I, it, he just he was pushing and pushing and pushing, and I thought this could be the worst performance ever. But he'll never let you go past the truth. Right now, we all look at Naomi Watts like, oh, okay, she's been in all of these things. But at the point that David Lynch cast her in Mulholland Drive, she was a lesser known actor. She was doing a lot of, you know, made for TV movies and. Even in one of the interviews, she talks about how she was close to giving up. She's probably worked with a lot of directors that would just give broad, generalized direction like this, like what's happening in this scene. So she probably found it relatable because she's had that experience. From so many years of rejection, I built up veneer after veneer and thought, okay, who do they want me to be? Am I supposed to be funny, sexy, smart? shy, quiet, and I didn't know who I was anymore. But whatever the way he looked at me was just so powerful. And he actually asked me questions. So there was a conversation. It wasn't just eyes on me. I actually felt the courage to talk to him and ask him questions. And suddenly we were two people. Justin, like in the terms of the story, like first off, bigger picture, does the story work for you? Yes, overall, the story works. But there are things about it that probably don't. I have things that don't entirely work for me. It's story. It's a little bit intertwined with some filmmaking things. Some of it may sound a little shallow. I invite you to kind of like press me on these issues and and point out it's stupid that these are issues for me. <laughs> okay. Well, we, I, I did during our discussion about Metropolis, so I'm more than happy to do it again this week. Well, see, here's the thing. I stand by <laughs> my issues with Metropolis. <laughs> These are things I could I could maybe be swayed on. Okay. I, I don't know. Um, so you're less firm about your, this doesn't work. Yeah. I would say the first hour and a half of this film has one feel, and then the last hour has another feel. Mm-hmm. The first hour and a half I would describe as, I've seen them referred to as mosaic films, but I don't know if this is a term that everybody knows. It's little episodic vignettes that don't necessarily go anywhere, don't necessarily connect to each other. I think of like Altman films, like Shortcuts, Magnolia, Crash. But so the point of those films is eventually they connect. Yeah. In Crash, you learn that, oh, all these stories are connected. They know each other in some way. In Shortcuts and Magnolia, though, they're connected by a shared experience. Shortcuts, it's an earthquake. Magnolia, it's the frogs. In this case, that doesn't really happen, although it sort of happens. The second half, the last hour, is where like it's almost like, oh, there's plot development now. It's going somewhere. What I really think is that it's very clear what the TV portion was. And it's very clear what the film portion was. And they, they're they clashing against each other a little bit. 
the first half, the vignettes, while I like them, I like them so much that I wish there were more of these characters. When I was watching it, it felt like this is setting up a character who's going to come back in another episode. It's a story that's going to evolve and develop over a season multiple seasons, and then with the nature of it becoming a film, just disappear. And Lynch has this, in the end, this way of bringing them back and trying to tie it together. And I think he does that fairly well, but it still feels like it's disconnected. As an example, the winky scene, you could say that's disconnected. I don't argue that that scene should be cut. I don't think that scene should be cut. I think it's a great scene, one of the best scenes in the film. I almost wish there was more of that character. Robert Forster is in this film for literally a minute, which is probably the most strange one because he's around this time pretty big coming off of Jackie Brown. So if I could kind of jump in on that one, that was one that I was, like I was trying to remember, did, did I just miss him returning? Because, I don't think he ever returns. Okay. That was the character that I was expecting to see somewhere at that dinner later on. Well, but- or he could have just been one of the detectives. When we're at the end of the film and we now have Naomi Watts as Diane, she's being visited by detectives. Let's kind of just backtrack a little bit here just to make sure that everybody's kind of understanding here. Essentially, Naomi Watts's character in the first half of the film is this character, Betty. And she's this kind of bright-eyed, new to LA from Ontario. And she's here to kind of house it, but she's also trying to, you know, become an actor. And there's this naivety to her. Later in the film, she's this uh, other character, Diane, and Diane is basically the real version, I would say, of who this character is. And she's kind of failed. She's struggling. And she's kind of alone at this point. That first section is essentially whatever you want to call it, a dream, a fantasy, a, you know, some disassociation, delusion. It's essentially not real. It's the kind of what she, I guess, wishes her life was. It's also worth noting that Rita is Rita in that first half. Then when we come to reality, Rita is Camilla Rhodes, the actress that was being pushed on Adam to cast in the role in his film. I I guess I'll kind of jump in because, you know, you highlight that there are these characters, you know, you bring up the characters that are at the Winkies and how it is one of the best scenes of the movie but it is very cuttable. And I, I'm gonna I'm gonna respectfully disagree here because thinking about it, well, I I understand your perspective where the first hour, hour and a half feels like one thing, and then the second half feels like something completely different. I do feel like there's an intentional element to that because the first hour to an hour and a half, you're treated to again, we can argue semantics dream or fantasy of Diane as Betty or a look back at who she was or at least her perception of who she was to the reality of things. Personally, I think that works. And I think it works really well because from a audience and a viewer perspective, I'm on one path 
And I have certain expectations like, okay, you know, there's this mystery and I kind of have a sense of where this is going. And then Lynch kind of flips the table on you and say, and says, everything that you thought you knew is a lie. And I think from that perspective, it works. I feel like that's an argument for why everything Betty and everything Rita experienced together is important. I don't necessarily think that argument works for why the the guy behind the Winkies that should be included in the film. And again, I'm not arguing that it should be cut because ultimately I think this is a film about the experience and that's a great scene. My other example is the cowboy. I love the scene with the cowboy and I honestly wish we had several more scenes with him. Do you think Adam's experience with the cowboy is needed for Diane's journey. The way that I look at that first film, it's all Diane justifying or kind of explaining things from her point of view and her psyche. So I think the characters of the cowboy, Mr. Roke, and the financiers, in addition to Adam to an extent, are all of these They're representative of all of these things that are happening that is holding her back and preventing her from achieving this this level. Correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like you're looking at them as independent characters while I'm looking at them as reasonings or justifications to where the character eventually gets. I don't want to go back and forth because I, I can say I can say, well, that argument works for Adam and the cowboy, but that argument does not work for the guy behind well, the Winkies. Well, now now the hobo behind the Winkies, if you think about the context of that scene, it is a person explaining a dream to another person and then the dream eventually becoming a reality. That scene is telling you that there is something else to this. And I I think the hobo represents what we eventually find with Diane. And the hobo is actually that ugly, evil side of Diane that we're going to see. It's it's everything that Betty isn't. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Have I convinced you? Well, you've convinced me that the scenes add something to the film. I think you make a stronger point for your side than I do for mine. And I think the only thing that'll change my opinion is if I just sort of like somehow recalibrate and rewatch the film and I experience it again. Because ultimately, like, it's a film that I feel. It's a film that like I get every emotion that David Lynch is trying to convey. And it works. Every scene that's in there sort of works on its on its own. And I just get hung up when I try to connect all the pieces. It's not a getting confused. It's just like, I feel like some pieces are missing. Okay, so let's let's touch on that for a second, though, because I, I think that's an important element because, you know, you, you talked about mosaic filmmaking. One of the reasons why I refer to this film as, at least the the first half of it, as being 
a dream is because there is a lot of disconnect. If you're a person who can remember your dreams in greater detail, you know that you go from one thing to another and there's not always connective tissue to it. And I think that's why this does work for me. Basically, the film is a dream sequence because it's not always about getting to the next thing. It's not always about the connectivity between these things. It is just about, hey, this thing happened, and now this thing happened very much, again, like a dream. Yeah, I agree with that. And that's sort of, I mean, dreamlike or whatever is a a way that this film is commonly described and his filmmaking style is often described that way. And I, I agree with that. Um, I can't argue with that. Yeah. Let's talk about this for a minute. Like, I mean, whether it's literally a dream or whether it's not, and like that being not that important for me, the film is about this like disassociation. If it's literally a dream, it, it conflicts with that idea as opposed to being the mental breakdown of this person and the the fantasy that she tries to sell herself. We could argue semantics here, and we could probably go down a rabbit hole, but until we're given the truth of it, I think it's less important how we label it, because to the character, to Diane, this was the reality of it. I agree with everything you're saying, and then at the same time, you don't. I disagree with everything you're saying. <laughs> so do you think that maybe that speaks to the complexity of Mulholland Drive and, and maybe Lynch as a filmmaker overall? Because there is an interpretation. And again, like, I'm not saying you're wrong and I'm right. And But at the same time, I think that there needs to be this understanding that what something like Mulholland Drive and how one interprets it can really be up to that person. Because even when we started this discussion about what is Mulholland Drive about, you identified it as a love story. I identified it as more of a film about failure and romanticizing the past and, and Los Angeles as a whole. We could probably put 10 people in a room, have them watch Mulholland Drive, and we could probably get 10 different perspectives. A film like this doesn't get made very often. And I'm happy that there is a film that is sort of this complex and also doesn't, for the most part, hold the viewer's hand too much and guide them along. It kind of just, you know, lets it be what it is and you are left to decide what it means to you. Um, that is sort of going away. And I think we both feel like that's that's not a good thing. People try to understand everything. People get hung up on like, well, what does that mean? I think people like to be ahead of films rather than films be ahead of them. They don't want to wait till the end to find out what the answers are. They kind of want to know what's going on every single moment. And this film definitely doesn't work that way. No, not at all. And I, I would even argue that while there is more clarity about what happens to Diane. I think there's a lot of things that don't have answers. In closing, the story works for you. However, there are things that clearly you're you're struggling with. I think it's 
clear based off of the discussion, it did work for me. I didn't really have too many issues or hiccups with it. Probably didn't sound like it based off that discussion, but I do believe the the story works despite everything I said. (laughs) And I know that this is something that Lynch does, but the things that I grabbed onto were really like those little metaphorical items. You touched on the blue box and the, and the key really, that was the gateway to opening up the reality that was Diane. I think it was really compelling to me how to an extent the story was so focused on really finding yourself, having that key in that box, opening up the reality of the world that is Diane and taking us as the audience out of the perceived or the dream and how they drop us into the real world. I I thought that was really interesting and really compelling. I love the image of when that is finally opened Mm -hmm. and just how like inky black the interior is. You don't see inside. It's, It's just like this, this sort of like never ending void. And this is kind of going to how we transition to reality, but the box falls on the ground the actress whose apartment that belongs to kind of comes in and the box is not there. For one moment, we're experiencing what actually is going on in this house or this apartment. Rita, Betty, Diane, Camilla, none of them were there. If there was a scene that I think Justin hated in this movie, the hit gone wrong. Yeah. How did you know that? (laughs) Yeah, I hope you're not going to get in any trouble. Oh, that was just a thing, man. But that story, that made you laugh, right? That was a funny story, man. (laughs) Fucking car accident. (laughs) Hey, so that's, uh, that's it, huh? That's Ed's famous black book. The history of the world and phone numbers. So I actually kind of had a good time with it at first, I kind of enjoyed the scene because there was like that comedic element versus everything else that's been so heavy. And and I think that Lynch did that comedy well, you know, because it's not like he's known for being a hysterical or hilarious guy in his films, at least. And, and I think that that, to me, up to a point that sequence worked where it was just kind of a kind of a comedy of errors and you hated it and i knew that you would i don't hate it okay it's just a scene that i it's my least probably my least favorite scene of the film what is it about it that that you know of me personally that would make me hate that scene well to be blunt uh you don't have a sense of humor well that's true yeah i didn't think that you were going to like that scene primarily because it feels very much like something that we've seen done a hundred times on the surface. I don't think it serves much of a point or purpose. I also think that you wouldn't like it because it goes on way too long. Have I hit on any of them? Yeah. That first point, I mean, that it's been done. I mean, to, to put it in just in terms, it's not a very interesting scene. I sort of agree. And I sort of don't agree. Okay. It's a theme of this, this episode. (laughs) Justin's playing it right down the middle this week. Okay, I want to point out, I I think this scene 
if you want to compare it to anything else in Lynch's filmography, I think it probably fits most with Twin Peaks, the show. Twin Peaks, the show has, I would say, comedic moments. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. What I like about the comedic scenes in Twin Peaks is that they feel, well, not all of them, but for the most part, they feel like they're not trying too hard. The hitman scene in Mulholland Drive feels like it's trying a little too hard for me. Ultimately, it reminds me of other films and other filmmakers. It feels like like a copycat scene of something the Coen brothers would do. And that's why I said I would reference the Coen brothers later. Uh, there was a time people tried to mimic the Coen brothers. And I don't think anyone can do it. And this scene feels the same way to me, although I feel it's better directed than probably any of the other attempts at it. There's parts of it that I, I kind of like. I it, When he's placing the gun in her hand and he's you know trying to wipe his fingerprints off and the gun goes off. Um. That initial moment is kind of interesting. To back up a moment, when the hitman actually kills the guy and David Lynch cuts to a close-up of the hair, burnt hair that's sticking out, like those little details I think are what Lynch does really well. So I I like that. When the gun goes off, I'm okay. I'm, I'm with that. When he goes into the room and the woman starts fighting him, or he, well, he tries to fight the woman, she fights back. It starts to lose me a little bit. I have some issues with the direction of that as well. It is a messy fight sequence, I will say. Of of everything else in this film that I feel is pretty buttoned up, that does feel, and I hate to use this term when talking about Lynch, that fight sequence feels sloppy. One could make the argument that there is an attempt to make it sort of messy. It's just, it's just too, it's, it just doesn't work. It's, it's so, it's so close. The photography is just like, it's right up against their bodies. Then there's the moment where they're on the ground, you know, like there's these punch sound effects, but you can tell like she's not hitting him. It's like these sound effects disconnected from what's actually happening in the scene. You touch on a couple things. Clearly the comedic element, the sound effects and the things kind of not syncing up and not working. So the next relevant scene that we see the hitman in, he's meeting with Diane in the Winkies. And it's when Diane is plotting the, or is hiring him to kill Camilla. If we were to think about that sequence taking place in the context of Diane's psyche, dream, whatever the case may be, to me, I think it makes sense that she would be justifying what this person does, how they do it in a more slapsticky comedic way that maybe doesn't match with the reality of things. 
So punching sound effects like this uh, error of of an attempt, it's her way of basically making herself at peace with what she eventually does. I do think if we look at the sound effect by itself, the the punch and hit sound effects in this film are very theatrical. They're very cartoony, maybe even. Um, I do think there's something to be said about either this is her perception of violence or even something going a little further that like her only reference point for violence is movies. So when she thinks of what a punch sounds like, it's like this very over the top thud that you'd see in, you know, serials or it kind of reminds me of something you'd hear in like a Indiana Jones movie. Mm -hmm. These two films have very different tones. The fact that they're using very similar fight sound effects feels kind of weird. So I feel like it's like, this is her perception of what violence is. Either it's, she's making light of it or she has no reference point other than movies like Indiana Jones. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But going back to that scene, and then so he's dragging her back into the room, the the adjoining room, Mm -hmm. and we get that cut to the cleaner with the vacuum cleaner just standing there. That's one of those other things where it's like, oh, I'm back in. Because it's it's a funny shot. Because it's not like he's rounding the corner it's like he's been standing there and he maybe has been standing there for a while. And then this guy, this hitman tries to play it off like he's he's actually trying to help this woman. Hey, man, hey, and she's hurt real bad. Could you come here and call on the phone, please? I need you. She's hurt real bad. I'm serious. You got to come in here and call a hospital. Come on, man. I'm serious about this. I can't do everything by myself, man. It's like the scene has me, the scene loses me, the scene has me. And then when he's shooting the vacuum cleaner and it shorts out and it starts a fire, like then it loses me again. It's a scene I don't hate, but it's a scene that is, uh, I don't think entirely successful and is not my favorite, my favorite scene in the film. Here at Scene by Scene, we also want to make sure that we're going through more of the technique and we've kind of touched upon some of these elements, but Justin, what are some uh, technical elements or aspects that you'd want to highlight or talk about? I think it's interesting to note how the film starts. We get the the shot of the sign at night, the sign that says Mulholland Drive illuminated by headlights and then it goes into darkness. But then we get the scene, essentially the jitterbug scene. interesting on a lot of levels number one because it is kind of crude the mat on those silhouettes the edges are really kind of jagged and i think that's intentional lynch is creating this artificial world where the vfx and the things like that are not striving for photorealism they're striving to create a mood and a feeling the other reference point would be like 
Blue Velvet, there's a sequence with a robin and a beetle. And the robin is this really kind of crude animatronic that kind of moves in this robotic way. And I would say that's entirely intentional. The effects, in that case special effects or the VFX visual effects don't necessarily look photoreal and that's not their that's not their goal. But I think that opening sequence is really interesting because it turns out to be real in the beginning of the film. She says that she won this contest. It happens to be real, but it also kind of sets you up for what type of film you're about to see, that it is an internal experience. It is someone's internal journey. It's not to be taken literally. The shot directly after that is the camera floating over the bed and kind of pushing into the pillow, which is to imply that everything that follows is, in fact, not real. A dream. People talk about, oh, you don't know what's happening until the very end of the film. But Lynch gives visual clues along the way that what you're seeing isn't real. The other thing that stands out to me, and it's most noticeable in the apartment, and it's when Betty first arrives and she's kind of wandering around the house, is these like POV shots of like rounding corners and going through the hallways. I mean, you typically get POVs of whatever a character's looking at, but this almost feels like a horror movie where the killer is kind of stalking the teenager they're about to kill. Not only does it establish a tone and a mood, but I also feel like it's one of those things that's cluing you in to the fact that this is not reality, that this is someone's like internal experience. Does any of that make sense? Yeah, it it absolutely does. And I I had uh kind of written down on my end just the uniqueness of that walking hallway sequence because you know, we talked earlier about the hitman scene just kind of not fitting. This was a moment that I'm like this doesn't necessarily feel like it belongs here, but there's so many of those moments that I think it just kind of comes together. So I kind of just got to the point where I'm accepting of these things. But I, I think overall Mulholland Drive requires you to just accept. I, I know we're not talking about lighting yet, but you've brought up the first time that we see Betty, or at least like the early, early sequences where we see Betty. There's something like unnatural about her lighting. She's not overlit to the point that she's like washed out or blown out or anything, but there is this unrealistic lighting of her. And she just feels more, you know, and I I think it kind of lends itself to the fact that this is somebody's view internally of themselves and their perspective, because for the most part, she's very well lit and she's generally pretty bright and at times unnaturally across the majority of the first half of the film. Yeah. When you say when we first see her, are you talking about when she's at the airport going down the escalator or when she's like superimposed over the... Well, both. The jitterbug sequence where she's, you know, you've got the dancers or whatever, and she kind of comes up over it. That lighting reminds me of something like, they're almost like she's being lit by flashbulbs. This idea that she's maybe, you know, like on stage or on a red carpet and she's envisioning like this being her life. Or maybe it literally is like, you know, she says she wins the competition. This is the moment where she's she's won. Obviously, it has more meaning later on. It really stood out for her, and I don't feel like we get it as prevalently with anybody else. The Rita Camilla character, she is lit differently. She doesn't have as much of that spotlight on her. 
generally she's a little bit more darker and a little bit more not necessarily shadowed but so i i know i kind of diverted us away from the cinematography and the visuals and kind of how things were shot this is one of those films where i feel like the cinematography and the lighting just go hand in hand so much and i think the look changes intentionally when rita and betty you know get up I guess in the middle of the night and they go to that theater, that whole sequence when they're driving there and the way the, the lights are flaring and none of that is accidental. At what point you are in the story, the visual style evolves to kind of keep up with it, which is obviously a director and a DP knowing exactly what they're doing. I think you nailed it. And there was a moment on some of the supplementals that, I thought kind of really hammered that home and we'll talk about that shortly here. So just in terms of camera work and the way things are covered, the Winkies scene is interesting. I just wanted to come here to Winkies. This Winkies. Okay. Why this Winkies? kind of embarrassing. Go ahead. I had a dream about this place. Oh, boy. See what I mean? <laughs> okay. So you had a dream about this place. Tell me. Well, it's the second one I've had, but they're both the same. They start out that I'm in here, but it's not day or night. It's kind of half night, you know? But it looks just like this, except for the light. And I'm scared, like I can't tell you. It's covered in over the shoulders. But it's not what you'd normally see. The The camera kind of floats. Yes. And there's like this bobbing and, and it kind of slide off to the side to, you know, either frame a little bit more of someone's head or going the opposite direction to turn it into like a single. And then there's that moment where he he's like, and, and, and you were standing right over there. By that counter. You're in both dreams. And you're scared. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid you are, and then I realize what it is. <laughs> There's a man in back of this place. And he kind of turns and looks over his shoulder, and the camera kind of moves with his, his head turn. I just kind of felt like this was this thing where there was the presence of something else there with them and it's happening as they're talking about this dream where there's this guy behind the winkies that the face so scary he never wants to see it again it's just this idea that like there's this other sort of thing with them watching them observing them do so you have a different interpretation of the choice to kind of keep it handheld but it's not just handheld it purposely kind of moves i actually had the winkies scene as something that I kind of want to talk through, how the camera just kind of drifts and floats across there. Up to that point, 
it was just so different than anything else that we had experienced in the film. Yeah. In the context of the film, that winky scene and that conversation feels maybe to some people, it feels out of place. And I think that it's further pushed to that degree because of the camera work. I, I think it's telling you and it's sharing a lot of information because it's this false reality. You know, you're you're almost kind of left questioning what perspective is this? Who is watching them? And I, I know like film professors and cinematography teachers will will always ask, well, whose perspective is is the camera? This is a moment where I don't feel like the camera has single person's perspective. And maybe you disagree. Maybe I'm wrong. I would argue that the perspective of the camera is not a character in the scene. I feel like it has a perspective, but it's not a character that we are aware of or have been introduced to or even a character necessarily. It's just this thing. And it can be this underlying darkness, whatever. I think the camera just continues to be like a representation of what we eventually find out to be Diane and Diane's psyche, her inward looking at what's happening. And to kind of shift it to the editing a little bit, but to stay on that track. Last time I had talked about the idea of scene to scene editing, how one scene leads to the next scene can mean something. The winky scene let me ask you, are you aware of the shot right before the winky scene and the shot directly after the winky scene? If you're not, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm not recalling. I'm sorry. Rita has just entered the apartment. She's there by herself and she lays down and goes to sleep. And then we cut to the winky scene. Mm-hmm. We have the scene in which he's describing a dream. And then we cut to Rita again, sleeping and then waking up. Not only does that sort of you know, link that scene through the idea of dreams, but it also does sort of connect it again to Diane, this idea that this is all just part of her dream or fantasy. You touch on something else that's kind of an interesting from a visual storytelling perspective and the way that the film kind of reveals information to you. In that moment, you you think that this dream or this thing that's happening is a dream tied to the Rita character. But in the reality, it's a psychological subconscious thing that Diana is going through. So what what else do you have as far as like visuals go? I have one scene I want to get to in terms of some things that stand out to me in a discussion that will evolve from that. I did make a note of phone calls, and this isn't unique to Mulholland Drive, but this is a good ex- a good time to kind of just mention it. There's a scene where Adam and his assistant are talking on the phone. He's in that CD hotel. She's informing him that he's broke. Hello? Uh, someone maybe shut off my money. I know. Where are you, Adam? Uh, sorry, what, what, what do you mean you know? Somebody called. When they couldn't get you, they, they told me you were as good as broke. I didn't believe them, so I made a few calls. And? You're broke. Yeah, but I'm not broke. I know, but you're broke. Where are you? I'm at Cookies downtown. Do you know somebody called the Cowboy? The Cowboy? Yeah. The Cowboy. This this guy, the Cowboy, wants to see you. And just the idea of how you photograph a conversation on the phone. They're profile shots, each of them. 
but they're facing opposite directions. So they're essentially facing each other as they talk. So we cut from one character facing the center of the screen, all that looking room on the right, and then we cut to the next character facing that center of the screen with the looking room on the left. So it just gives this impression that they're looking at each other and talking to each other. It seems like this minor thing, but it's so common that movies, TV shows, they film phone call conversations in a way that disconnects the characters. Now, if that's the intent, that's one thing, but I don't think that's always the intent. I think the way it should be done, unless you're trying to show disconnection, is to photograph it like this because this sort of brings them together. I know this is not something unique to this movie necessarily. It's just something that this movie did well that I can kind of point and say, like, this is something to learn from. And I think it's a filmmaking technique and element that maybe has kind of been pushed to the back burner or just kind of forgotten. This is not meant to be disrespectful to any filmmakers out there right now, because, you know, Justin and I are also filmmakers. Being on a number of sets, I can't honestly say that I've ever had a director that would talk to me about hey, this is how I want to shoot this person on a phone conversation. It's just, okay, this guy's going to be talking on the phone and we're going to just like shoot him like, you know, a single or, you know, a close up with him on the phone. And then I, I don't think that there's ever that consideration of, okay, how can we relay that this conversation is happening between these two people and and show that and demonstrate that? There's other ways to do it, obviously. I mean, when Harry Met Sally does the split screen thing, when there's that conversation. And, you know, that's one way to do it. But that also brings sort of the filmmaking to your attention. I mean, you're breaking that illusion of immersion in a story. And it's more about look at these filmmaking techniques. But um, so, I mean, obviously, there's more than one way to do it. But I just feel like typically what you see is people photographed in a single straight on. It's just a close-up and then it immediately cuts to another close-up. It works because when you see two people on the phone, you make the connection. But there's filmmaking tools that can that can make that work so much better. And this is just one of those examples. And maybe this isn't interesting to anyone, but this is the stuff that I look for. This is the stuff that I pick up on. These are the things I try to study and learn from. And maybe this is one of these moments where this is maybe only interesting to a filmmaker or interesting to no one at all. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at this point, if if anybody's still listening, you know, thank you for for sticking with with Justin's uh, rant about shooting a phone conversation. Are there any scenes that you want to talk about in terms of the way they were shot or do you want to talk about the lighting? So actually, there's there's a couple scenes that I'm like, wow, the way that they photographed that was incredibly interesting to me. The first one, it's a nothing shot because it's not even a scene. It's just a shot. But it's one of the earliest scenes of Rita. It's after the accident. And it's the wide where she's running and you have basically like that street light. Oh, yeah. It's just photographed gorgeously. And well, there's like there's like some fog. Yes. Or some sort of atmosphere. Yeah, that's a great shot. From a visual standpoint, there are moments where I'll see something and I'll be like, okay, I'm all in because of this. That was one of those moments. 
Now, this is a different conversation. No disrespect to Roger Deakins, because Deakins has been known to say that the cinematography should not stand out in a film, should serve the film. And one could argue maybe that didn't serve the film, and that's why I'm just drawn to it. But at the same time, I I think, could it be cut? Absolutely. But it's just photographed so well that Listening to Lynch's masterclass, there's like case studies on certain shots from different films. And and the way he talks about it, he'll always say, oh, it's beautiful. Lynch, not only just being a filmmaker, but he's like, you know, a painter and a photographer and all these things that he actually is, does sort of look for beautiful images. When Deacon says the cinematography shouldn't stand out, the cinematography should serve the film. I mean, he's saying it should serve the story, right? Yes. And in this case, now Lynch is telling a story, obviously, but Lynch's main goal is to create a feeling and an emotion and create atmosphere in the frame. And sort of like traditional story takes a back seat. I would say that shot you're describing absolutely creates an emotion and it's absolutely got atmosphere. I think it might be just, you know, slightly different sort of theories on the purpose of cinematography and, you know, could vary based on what type of film you're making. It can also vary depending on what a filmmaker or director finds important. We could legitimately do a four-hour episode devoted to directors focusing on visuals rather than story at this point. But I, I think that you're you hit on something. And I, I feel like it seems like there was a trust between Lynch and his director of photography on this film. There's two more moments, and one of them, it's kind of a combination of blocking and the visual style and the way that a character is introduced. Now, the character turns out to just be a tertiary character that doesn't really come to much. But when we first meet Adam, if I'm not mistaken, he's in the boardroom with the studio executives And then the two financiers kind of show up. Ah, Mr. brothers, let me introduce you around. Oh, please. Uh, Let's take a seat. This is Mr. Darby, whom you know. And this is the director, Adam Kesher, and his uh, manager, Robert Smith. The way that that sequence was shot around the table... We talked last week about the two-shot being a a dead art form. This sequence is, with a few exceptions, it's all two shots. This whole thing is... And I kind of wonder, was part of this like based off of limitations, based off of the table and how people are uh, are blocked? We we really only shot one way, um, or we only shot basically towards one direction. I don't know why I, I'm kind of drawn to that scene just because of the way that it's blocked. And again, knowing that there's two shots, which we love two shots here. And the moment that I, I kind of, it, it amounts to a nothing character, but the way that the espresso sequence plays out, it tells you everything you need to know about the character that is that financier and the look that he gives. I'm sorry. That was a highly recommended... That is considered one of the finest espressos in the world, What is going on here? There is no way that girl is in my mind. In terms of 
that boardroom scene, what's great about it is the two shot is used, but it's not used exclusively. So as the scene sort of ratchets up and there's the conflict sort of emerges and builds, that's when you cut to like singles. Mm -hmm. And that's when they kind of gets tighter on Adam. My gut is saying it's not based on limitations. My gut is saying, well, they're blocked and it's photographed in that way intentionally. And they know exactly when they want to disrupt that sort of pattern of two shot, two shot, two shot. Yeah. Maybe that's one of those things that I appreciate about that sequence. But I I think, so to kind of take it to a broader scale, the way that tension builds in this film is pretty fantastic. And in this boardroom sequence, you kind of touch on a two shot, two shot, two shot, single close up. I constantly feel like there's things are being ratcheted up. One of the first sequences of the film, the accident happening, intercutting between the car being pulled over to the side of the road that Rita's in, and then the two cars that are racing. What are you doing? We don't stop here. Get out of the car. And just that back and forth, you know, just kind of building to, uh oh, you know, you, you just get that feeling of dread. And there's there's other moments of that. It really does just come down to everything being planned out precisely by Lynch and executing to the point that it all just comes together perfectly. Definitely. Anything else for you? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, I want to talk about one last scene. It's after Diane wakes up, and we're now what I interpret as reality and in the present. Mm -hmm. And she's in her apartment, and her neighbor comes to visit her to collect some things that were left there from when they switched apartments. You know what scene I'm talking about? Yes, I do. There's two things in this scene that stand out to me that I don't like. And this goes back to whether the film guides you, holds your hand. And I'm just going to throw them out and you can disagree with me. The neighbor comes in. She, there's some dialogue back and forth, but she says, the neighbor says, Come on, Diane, it's been three weeks. I'm just making sure, Diane. The reason this stands out to me is because this is a portion of the film where we've just pulled out of what we thought this movie was. And we're now into what this movie ultimately is about. And we went the whole movie thinking that Naomi Watts' character is, is Betty. And now we're being told Naomi Watts' character is Diane. And the way this dialogue plays out and the fact that the neighbor says the name Diane twice, it feels like the filmmakers are like, okay, pay attention now. This is Diane. And they're kind of guiding you to that interpretation. In case you missed anything, this is Diane. Do you want me to give my second one real quick and then you can respond to both? No, if I could just kind of jump in on that one. I I get that because for a film that I think up to that point doesn't really hold your hand or guide you, it's it's leaving things up to you, that does feel out of place. I, I will I will agree with that one. Maybe it is just a courtesy to wait. Did I catch that kind of moment? 
it doesn't feel natural. I, I can't I can't provide a good justification on this one. So I I will agree. I think this one does not work. The second one is the neighbor catches the ashtray on the table. She grabs the ashtray. The camera pushes in on the blue key. I mean, it's hard to miss the blue key. And then it cuts to an extreme close-up of the blue key. That cut to the close-up feels like the same thing to me. It's like, remember the key before? Make the connection between that key and this key. I felt like the first shot that pushes in was sufficient. And then we need to cut. And, And I'm someone who believes that you don't cut unless you have to. By cutting, you're making a decision to show something else. That new thing you're showing is supposed to give you something new. And by it being the same object, it's almost like it pounding it into you, like make that connection. Isn't it meaningful for a different reason now? How so? It had a a meaningfulness to one degree in the not reality. Now it has a different meaning within the real world. Don't you believe a camera push in is emphasizing that object and bringing attention to that element to then cut to the extreme close-up, it feels redundant, I guess. I don't know. These are things that certainly could be described as nitpicks, but like I feel like the film is just working so well. And then these things happen and they just feel like false notes. I mean, but to go off of that, that same scene or the scene after uses the ashtray really well. We have the scene where the neighbor comes and takes the ashtray. And then we are in a scene later in which the ashtray is back on the table to tell you that, oh, we're back in the past. This is a flashback, essentially. I actually think that works. Respectfully, I, I do kind of wonder if this is maybe a little nitpicky on your part. I get it. I've I've talked film with you for a long time. I've made projects with you. So so I, I do understand the mindset and mentality you approach it with. I do think that if we're arguing over a character's name being used twice or a push in uh, to a close up or a push no, it's in. Not, it's a push in, then a cut to a close up. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> I think if those are the the biggest flaws that we're pointing out, then the film is relatively successful. I think the film is very successful. Okay. <laughs> All right. I just want to, I just want to yeah. point out one thing and we don't have to discuss this too much. Something I really like about Lynch is, and this is present in his other films is he will linger on a shot before and after a character enters or leaves the frame. So you're just looking at an empty room for a moment. And then all of a sudden the character will enter. Usually that stuff is cut so tight where it's like you cut when the character's entering, you cut when the character leaves, but it'll just hold a little bit longer than normal, which I like. Yeah, I definitely noticed that too. And I, I kind of wonder if that's just, that sort of speaks to the way that Lynch sees film. And and I'm hypothesizing here. Um, I don't have a being John Malkovich portal into David Lynch's head to know this to be true. But if you're spending the time to to shoot a film and you're trying to create this reality, because that's what you're doing in a film, you're you're creating this reality. And maybe he does that to just reinforce this reality exists with this person in it or without them, and with or without the sequence of events that are about to take place. Again, just hypothesizing. 
Anything else regarding the technical elements of Mulholland Drive before we move into supplemental material? I don't have anything. Okay. I just want to say, anybody listening, if you don't have the Criterion Blu-ray of Mulholland Drive, I personally think that this is worth the purchase for the onset footage alone. Now, I don't know. Did you take time to watch the onset footage? I didn't get a chance to watch it, no. Okay. There's a few things that I just, that just immediately jumped out. And then I think we can kind of dive into a little bit further of the David Lynch process. They're setting up to do Naomi Watts's scene at the Winkies, where she's talking to the hitman. David Lynch is in the chair and he's, he's watching the monitor. I'm not sure who it was, but they were basically like trying to position the drop of the dirty dishes bin and everything. I'm going to butcher how this how this played out. But the guy checking with David Lynch, who's watching out in the monitor, says this out of frame. That's out of frame. Yeah. So we can come right now. Um, Let's make sure. There you go. Are you seeing this chair? I don't know what you're talking about because I can't see it. It was one of those moments that I'm like, this person is making a film in a very special way because his focus is whatever is on this monitor, that's what exists. So it kind of ties back into my previous point, and that's kind of why I made the comment that I did. The way that he worked when you know a scene is playing out, that is the world and that is the reality. And if that chair isn't in shot, it doesn't exist. You kind of dove into things that you thought that are maybe a little minute to some people, the way a conversation over the phone is photographed. This was one of those moments for me that I'm like, this feels like a small moment, but it's very telling about who he is as a filmmaker. You know, you, you see that a little bit later on too. There's there's just like a, a joy about when he's when he's shooting things and he's he's making this. And I'm sure that there are days that he doesn't feel that way, but he just comes across as a, a very, very focused individual on what he wants. And he's communicating that, but he's also trusting those around him to make it happen. I highly recommend the onset footage. The The interviews were great. Laura Herring talks about the transition from it being a show to a movie. Laura Herring talking about some of the uncomfortableness, but how Lynch made it you know, more comfortable for her. It speaks to the trust that he earns with his actors, uh, so definitely recommend those supplemental materials. Justin, do you have anything Mulholland Drive related that you would want to highlight or even David Lynch related? Real quickly, I'm just going to read a quote. This is from Lynch on Lynch again. And this is in reference to the Winky scene. David says, Okay, here's the deal. Denny's restaurant on Sunset used to be a place called the Copper Penny. It was right on Goer and Sunset. I think that's where Frank Capra worked. And in the old days was the corner where all the movie extras would line up in the morning for work. And Denny's there was a pretty strange Denny's. I'm not positive, but I think there was a satanic booth in the parking lot there for a while. And then uh, Chris Rodley asks, what's that? And David Lynch replies, I don't know, but I used to go there and have breakfast. A grand slam. 
<laughs> Does that enlighten anything about the film? No, not really. I just, I just, I think it's, I think it's great. <laughs> I have this book. Um, this is a series of books, filmmaker on filmmaker. I might reference them in the future because I think they're interesting books. I could just keep reading and reading and I won't do that. I think we'll get to uh, something that we kind of teased last time. The idea of what is Lynchian. I think it's worth noting that in October of 2018, Lynchian, the term was added to the Oxford English Dictionary. I'll read the definition. An adjective used to describe works of film or television that are characteristic, reminiscent, or imitative of the works of David Lynch. That does not help us understand what it actually means, but <laughs> do you have any initial thoughts on what it means for something to be Lynchian? I think for me, it would be a struggle to define given how much Lynch is a blind spot for me. Because within the context of basically two movies and a television series, I don't feel like I have enough exposure to truly define I can tell you, based off of what I have seen, Lynchian to me means complexity. It means a very unique visual style. I think it means a psychological element and an exploration of a person or humanity. I have a list here, and I think two of them are what I truly believe, and I have the remaining as things that you often hear that I don't disagree with, but I don't think are the number one elements. My first two things are a little strange because they're inherently the way he works, not necessarily the final product. Well, I, if I could just jump in before you go too far, I think that's important to recognize and to include within the context of your definition because Without these things, this product doesn't exist or doesn't exist at the level that it is. Yeah, so you don't think this is unfair to define it this way? No. Okay, good. The first one is working from intuition, which we've hinted at a little bit before. But I think there's this feeling that Lynch tries to be surreal or tries to make movies that don't make sense. Now, that that obviously is completely false. I just think he's pulling from his intuition, from his gut, and this is just kind of the way he is. So an idea pops up to him and that influences another idea and that influences another idea. And he's got this sort of string of ideas and he doesn't overthink it. If it feels right, then it's right. And so the result of that is sometimes it's a little weird or unpredictable. But I don't think his goal is to get there. That's just what comes out. If someone were trying to trying to imitate that style, I think it may feel like it's a little bit forced that they're maybe trying. And where him, it's just it comes natural. Um, the second thing is film as an artistic medium and not strictly a storytelling medium. And so that is, I think he he focuses on creating through image and sound and other elements a feeling and an emotion and an experience. If someone like me has issues with the story or something, it's, you know, they're missing, they're missing something. They're, 
that's not the point of the film. It goes beyond, as an example, I mean, if you went to an art museum or whatever, and you're standing in front of a painting, while there will be people who want to know what the artist was thinking, there's not going to be this huge discussion about like, what is the meaning of this for the artist? It's like you come up with your own interpretation. And I don't think that carries over to film as much, but I think from Lynch's perspective, it should. Well, if I could kind of jump in on this one a little bit too, I kind of question if he views that as being important. Taking it back to a personal experience that you and I have had, you've said to me verbatim, well, that doesn't matter. That's not what the film's about. You've said those words to me. So I kind of wonder if there is clearly for him, it's at a grander scale, but it doesn't matter because that's not why I'm making this film. I've watched his masterclass and in his masterclass, and you even see this in the trailer for the masterclass, is he's like, if you want to make a feature film, all you need is 70 ideas. Write these 70 ideas on index cards. And you know when you have 70 of them, you have a feature film. I mean, that's the extent of his screenwriting advice. It's not about like, I, I think at some point he even jokes about the three-act structure in the, in the class. This is the thing about a formula where they say that in the first, it's a three-act formula, I think, or something like that. And I don't know what the latest formula is. This word formula in the Department of Writing is like death penalty crime. Tailgating is really bad and the people should stop for stop signs and red lights. But in cinema, I don't like rules. And there's no discussion about like, how do you create the story that builds, there's character development and then the character is changed in the end or any of these more traditional ideas of what story is. It's just like, all you need is 70 ideas. No discussion of if they connect or how they connect or anything. So, I mean, I think that just shows like, while he's telling a story, it's not the way you probably are used to hear. I mean, especially if you go to film school or a screenwriting class or whatever. I mean, I'll just rattle off these last ones really quick because um, these are things that you often hear. I think thematically, darkness sort of lurking under the surface of picturesque environments, whether it's like small town America with Mulholland Drive, Hollywood, you know, whatever. There's always just this sort of darkness lurking below the surface. And if you go to the right places, you'll find it. Dreamlike quality, some reoccurring visual elements. Roads are in all of his movies. Red curtains or drapes. The chevron pattern on floors. Mirrors, doppelgangers. Stages usually with singers. The union of visual and audio is something very important to his films, where I think he takes the audio experience very seriously. And I think he's very involved in that process as opposed to, you know, other filmmakers. He believes that when the two come together, they can create something that's more powerful, better than just the sum of the parts or whatever. And the last thing I have is repeating phrases that take on new meanings. In Mulholland Drive, it's... This is the girl. This is the girl. What girl? This is the girl. You know, that phrase means something when it's said at one point in the film by one character, and then it's said at another point in the film by another character or a different character, and it takes on this new meaning. That's very common. 
those last few are kind of surface level, kind of shallow observations. I think the first two are what I truly believe makes a Lynch film. Again, it's it's a very at the surface item, but, you know, symbolism of an object being like a totem for something else or um, having like some other meaning than what we're used to or what we expect. I think it's a great film. I would I would recommend it to people, even though it's not for everyone. I would I would recommend it. Unlike our previous episode of Metropolis, this one, I can honestly say I would recommend to the vast majority of people. Now, I do accept and acknowledge a lot of people are not going to like it. And there's probably a a good number of people that would probably just turn it off or give up on it halfway through. But this is one that you stick with. I I really honestly believe that. And if if you give it the chance, it is... I think that this is a special film. I really do. On one hand, because of the fact that it became a film from a TV show, but also it's a good story. A lot of technical elements that are are pretty great. Yeah, I I, I couldn't recommend it more. Yeah, and I want to add, um, I'm glad that this unfolded the way it did, that Mulholland Drive is now a film, and it is the film that it is. I know I went back and forth on like TV, film, characters dropped, missing, but this is so much better than it would have been as a, as a TV series. If you build a film for the audience, because it takes a year or more to make a film, the audience is gonna be a year different when the thing is done. And you could, you know, have missed, the, missed that time. If you stay true to the idea, and make it as good as you can, and you love it, maybe others will love it too. But you don't know. If you think about the audience and build it for them, it might, you got just as good a chance. They might hate it, you know, but you didn't build it for yourself. And it's it's like, um, to me, the wrong way to go. So, Joe, you're going to be picking the film for our next episode. What will we be discussing next time? For our next episode, we're going to be breaking down Edward Yang's 1986 film, Terrorizers. Definitely a film that I have not seen at this point. And as we discuss in our introduction episode, I I love what Yang does of of everything I've seen of his. You know, this one is one that I've wanted to see and watch for for some time. Yeah, I also have not seen this film. We have a mutual love for for Edward Yang films. Uh, Yeah, so I'm eager to see this because I've never seen it. I'm sure that we'll we'll catch up on additional Yang films over the course of this podcast. One of my goals is to become a Yang completionist. Clearly, I think the films of Yang that everybody's familiar with are Yi Yi and A Brighter Summer Day. And I think those two are widely regarded as his best films. However, uh, a lot of people call out Terrorizers as one of the top three of his very limited filmography. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with somebody who might enjoy it.
If you'd like to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film, or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at scenebyscenepodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow us on Letterboxd, I can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson, and Joe can be found at letterboxd.com slash jrlefebvre83. Links will be in the description. So join us next time for our discussion of Edward Yang's Terrorizers. Thanks for listening to the Scene by Scene podcast. You don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over. That's what you said. There's nothing going on in movies right now. Great movie, huh? So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for? Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm uh, an active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? Still rolling. You know, oh. No, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. Cut! And cut! That great work, everybody. That's a wrap.